Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Fiona Valpi's French romances are like a glass of wine in French sunshine, a perfect summer and pandemic escape. And she writes more than romance. Her best-selling World War II fiction tells stories of remarkable women generations apart who use adversity to their advantage and find resilience deep within. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in Binge Reading this week, Fiona shows why her books are the perfect antidote for dark times and we offer the French Escape Giveaway, three ebook copies of her Chateau romance the French for always, going to three lucky readers. One reviewer called it an escapist read with the taste of summer on every page, and it's just what we need in difficult times. Enter the draw through the Joys of Binge Reading website or the Binge Reading Facebook page. Offer closes May 9, so don't delay. Get your name in the draw. A full transcript of our chat is available on the website as well and links to Fiona's books and social media links, all there for you to discover. But now, here's Fiona. Hello there, Fiona, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Can I just say from one binge reader to another, it's great to be here. That's wonderful. And um, you're in Scotland and I'm in New Zealand. It's the time of pandemic. So, Give our, our listeners a chance to discover what picture, how, how we are. Where are you sitting and how has social distancing been affecting you? Well, I'm in the conservatory of my house, which is um, on the edge of a little village in Perthshire in Scotland. And um, I'm literally the last house in the village. So I get the benefit of having the community nearby. But I'm also looking out onto um, my garden which is full of spring flowers at the moment, such a joy. Um, and then behind that, beyond that, there's um, some fields and trees and hills. And I've got the River Tay just down below as well, which I can't see because it's, it's sort of down in a, in a deep valley, but it's always lovely knowing the river's there. Um, so I'm lucky where I am. You know, I, I've got the, the sense of not being too trapped and too claustrophobic here. Um, I think I'm also really lucky with the small community that's around because they're so supportive and um, we've all got together and we do shopping for people who are in quarantine. Um, you know, if anyone needs anything, we will scurry around virtually, electronically and, and try and sort that. So there was a lovely story the other day of a, an elderly lady in a, in a care home and it was her birthday. And the community group all put their heads together via computer and managed to come up with a, a bagpiper who went and stood outside her window and played happy birthday to her. So, so that gives you the kind of idea of the spirit of, of community that I'm in. That sounds just gorgeous. It is. It's lovely. So from that point of view, I'm lucky. Um, I also think that with social distancing, actually being a writer 
we're quite anti-social people anyway. You know, the nature of our of our um, day job, if you like, is being quite isolated and um, you know working on our own and having that that space to to really focus on our writing. So, in fact, um, you know, lockdown that that we're in here at the moment um, has possibly been quite a good thing from my point of view, and I think my publisher would think it's a very good thing because. I no longer have any excuses for not hitting my deadlines. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> so we'll just move on to the question that I do always like to start with because it's the one people want to know the answer to. How did you first get into writing? Was there some kind of epiphany, once upon a time moment when it just really hit you hard that you should write fiction or was it more something there that was percolating under the surface for a long time? I think for me, it was the latter. It was something that had bubbled away um, for many, many years. Um, I'd always been a really avid reader. Ever since I was tiny, I would be buried in a book. Um, and quite often I would finish a book and sort of put it aside with that, that feeling of almost bereavement, you know, when you finished a book that you love and think to myself, I wish I'd written that. You know, I loved that so much. I wish I'd I wish I'd been able to to express myself in the way that perhaps a particular writer had done. So I think that that was always there, sort of in the background for me. Um, but it was only really when I moved to France um, that I had the two things that a writer really needs. Which, you know, one is the time to write, and the second thing was, of course, the inspiration. And moving to France, I found, I was lucky, I found both those things. Yes, that's wonderful. And you've now carved out a very strong niche for yourself in French romance and in dual timeline general fiction, particularly stories about World War II and France often features in them as well. What drew you to those two different genres, the French romance and the dual timeline historicals? Um, it was it was definitely finding a new home in France for those seven years. Um, you know, the, the inspiration for romance is just everywhere in France. It's, it's all around you. It's such a beautiful country. And um, the food, the wine, everything, the countryside, it, it all feeds in. There's, there's also the sort of joie de vivre of the, of the people that live there, you know, their very own French sense of humour. Um, so it was, that was really the romance side. It was just there all around me. Um, and then also actually in terms of World War II, the location of the home that we bought we didn't know really know it at the time. It wasn't something I was that aware, aware of, but it was right in the area where the demarcation line was between um, German-occupied France and Vichy France. And so, you know, the so-called um, unoccupied part of France for the first couple of years of the World War, Second World War. Um, so... As I kind of de delved, delved below the surface a little more, these, these extraordinary tales of resistance, of people's wartime experiences, um, and of the resilience that those people had to show, they, those started to come out quite slowly because people are always still these days reluctant to, to talk about those, those awful years. But I think being on that line of connection between occupied and unoccupied France 
um, meant that there was in, an increase in the resistance activity inevitably along that line. And so the stories I heard, I was started to hear as I made friends with, with French people locally, um, you know, those stories that started to come out were quite extraordinary. And I just felt these these stories need to be told. And especially they need to be told now because that generation is is dying out. You know, there are, there are very few people now who actually lived through those war years. They're getting older. Um, and so that kind of gave me the idea for combining the two, my love of the country and the beauty that surrounded me, but just beneath the surface with this kind of, you know, dark undercurrent of the legacy of the war years. Yes. Now, your, your most recent book feeds into that very nicely because you've actually dedicated it to true life women resistance fighters, haven't you? And it, yeah. it um it relates to a story of a, a young contemporary woman who goes to Paris to discover more about her English grandmother's life in Paris during the Nazi occupation. Um, it, and it was a case of don't ask questions unless you really want answers. Um, did that inspiration come from what you're mentioning, the stories that you've heard in your home? Yes, that's very much where that started. And then as I start, as I began to do more research of my own, uh, you know, having heard the stories of, of friends and people living, living close to me, um, I started digging a bit deeper. And um, that's really where I, I learned a lot more about these incredible women who worked for the resistance and um, many of whom lost their lives. And, and they endured the most horrendous, um, you know, conditions, the most frightening situations that they found themselves in. Um, and I, again, just felt absolutely compelled to get their story out there. With The Dressmaker's Gift, it's actually the sister book, uh, literally the sister book, to The Beekeeper's Promise, because um, it tells the story of Mireille and her younger sister, Eliane, is the main character in The Beekeeper's Promise. So um, I, I had to tell the story in The Dressmaker's Gift because Mireille's story needed telling. I'd sort of left that, that end, um, hadn't been tied up in The Beekeeper's Promise. Um, and Mireille goes to Paris, and so it's a it's a great contrast to the Beekeeper's Promise, where she's Eliane is very much living in the rural part of France um, on that demarcation line. Um, so Mireille is is kind of in a different situation in Paris and working for the couture industry. And as I was doing a bit more research historically, and I read Anne Seber's brilliant book, Les Parisiennes, which is it's a great read for anyone. It's it's written in English and she she is a historian. It's a it's a non-fiction work, um, but it looks at what women did in Paris during World War II. And again, there are just extraordinary stories that come out of that. So while I was reading about that side of things, I realized that there was this very strange, almost surreal juxtaposition of the couture industry with its elegance and, you know, it's still very expensive, very exclusive, um, and the actual struggle of everyday 
French people living in Paris, and particularly the seamstresses who were employed in the couture industry. So that's really what sparked my ideas for the dressmaker's gift and for, for telling Mireille's story. Um, but then some some other um, incredibly brave characters crept in there as well. My characters tend to take on a life of their own. Yes, yes. I must admit that it, it, it struck me to have interesting parallels with today where, I don't know, in New Zealand we've got essential industries at the moment in lockdown, which... Um, Certain essential. If you if you if your work is designated essential, you're able to keep on with it. And I saw in the dressmaker's gift that the Nazis actually very much um, encouraged and fostered the couturier industry because they liked to have their women dressed beautifully. And I, it had never occurred to me that that was actually what had happened. About the only thing I knew about that the couturier industry was that Coco was a um, you know, what was a collaborator? Yeah, Konoko Chanel. That's about the only thing I knew about it, yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, that's just, you know, one of, one of those extraordinary things. Um, it, it was a fact that I, that I sort of unearthed during my research that food was really strictly rationed. You know, the French, the French people were literally starving and any surplus food tended to be diverted to, to the German front anyway to support their war efforts. So, so, the French people were literally starving, um, but buttons and braid were not rationed. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. just so bizarre because the Germans prioritised the couture industry, and the the French Vichy government also wanted to go along with that. You know, I think it became a sort of um, almost a an emblem. That French, that that France hadn't completely been defeated. You know, they sort of took a pride in their couture industry, so it, it suited. For, I mean, obviously the, the Vichy government—that's a whole other can of worms there. But uh, you know, because they were they were put in place by the the Nazi occupiers, so obviously they were going to go along with what the Germans were saying. Um, yeah. But it did suit the French as well to to sort of have this couture industry still open for business as a as a kind of world flagship so it was it's you know like everything it's it's more complicated it's never black and white um but yeah it was it was just so extraordinary that the the dressmakers who were working on these amazing couture creations were starving yeah the other thing I really love about both those books is that your central character, Moreau in The Dressmaker's Gift and Eliane in The Beekeeper's Promise, also feature in your French For the French romance series. So it's it's a lovely surprise in a way that you, you get to hear a whole lot more about their lives and their backstories than you learn. They've got very interesting roles in the romance stories, but you just get a whole other side of their lives in these historicals, which is just like an extra gift, really. I love that. I love that you've picked up on that. Like I said, my characters take on lives of their own. Um, (laughs) I literally, I mean, I'm sure a psychologist would be having a field day with this if they could see inside my head. You know, there's this lovely world in there that's populated by these amazing characters that I I then put down in my books. Um, But yeah, they did. I mean, Mireille and Eliane both do feature in, in those first three novels that I wrote, The French for Love. The French for Always and The French for Christmas. 
and they they really did start out as as fairly minor characters. They had important roles to play in those books, but but they're not the main characters. But it was it was their stories that that started to grab me and captured my imagination. So yes, my books um, they can all be read as standalone novels, but there is a, a sort of interweaving of people and places throughout them that readers will begin to recognize. Yeah, and um, that's the kind of strand that I love when I'm when I'm reading books by other authors. Um, and so I very much enjoy that that kind of interweaving through through my books. Yes, um, the Beekeeper's Promise was an Amazon UK ebook bestseller, and it was shortlisted for Romantic Novel Awards too. So it it managed to hit sort of to the two bases, the historical and the romance. And yeah. like many of your other books, it also weaves fascinating extra information about bees and nature and winemaking and food. And I just wondered if you had to do a lot of research or whether these things very much reflected your own interests. Um, it's a mixture, but yes, in, a lot of it is drawn from my own life experiences. So, for example, when I lived in France, I did have bees. I had, I, I did keep bees, and I learned so much from that um, about what incredible creatures they are. So, yeah, it's a kind of, it, it's a bit like putting together a patchwork quilt. You know, writing a book. I'm, I'm drawing from. Um, all my experiences, and then inevitably I'll come up against the limits of my my knowledge and my experience, and that needs further research. So, so it's a little bit of both. But yeah, I think really the the art of the novelist is to to take that kind of patchwork of your your own life experiences and transform them into something else. What you were saying about your characters taking over does that indicate that you're more of a writer who starts out not quite sure knowing where the story is going to go like as a they call them seat of the pantsers pantsers yeah. or a planner are you more heavily on one side of that divide or the other well I started out as definitely a seat of the pants kind of a writer with my first book and it was my my characters and you know a few a few ideas that I had that I that I drew together there but I very quickly learned the, the huge benefits and advantages of planning. Um, and so I only wrote one book in that way. And um, it was it was quite a long and, and painful birthing process, shall we shall we call it. Um, so thereafter, I, I did plan a lot more thoroughly. And now um, I, I have to plan really, because I'm now that I have an agent and a publisher, um, you know, I'm having to put together proposals for the next book I'm going to write. I have to, I have to communicate to them what my ideas are before I'll get a contract for those for those ideas. So it's, you're kind of forced to plan a bit more, I think, as you as as your career develops as a writer. Yes. But um, yeah, I've definitely learned the benefits of planning the hard way. Yeah. You're published by one of the Amazon imprints, which is a, a definite coup in itself. I mean, it gives you a, a wonderful position to be published by Amazon. How did that come about? Um, that was thanks to my amazing agent. Um, I have a lovely agent, Madeline Milburn, and she was the one who 
put me together with Amazon Publishing. I'm, I'm published by Lake Union, which is the romance imprint. Um, and not many people really think of Amazon as a publisher, but there is a whole separate entity, Amazon Publishing, which has several different imprints, including children's books and crime novels. Um, and as I say, romance through, through Lake Union. Um, so I've, it's been a wonderful experience working with them. They're so professional. They're, you know, they're just like any of the other big publishers. Um, I have a whole team supporting me. I have great editors who definitely help to make my, my books better, uh, make sure that they're the best they can be. Um, so, so that's been a fantastic experience for me working with them. Now, the French Four series, I must say that they are absolutely recommended as, as a sort of summer escapist read. They've, they've got lovely emotional depth, but stories for our time in terms of the, the sort of slightly dark and challenging times we're living through. I loved what one reviewer said online. She, she wrote, the whole atmosphere in the novel immediately made it feel like summer, even though it was raining where I was. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and um, that was gorgeous. And I, d they do give a real sense of joy. Those stories, don't they? Absolutely. And I think that um, you know, we none of us could have possibly foreseen where we'd be right now in in terms of lockdown and isolation, and and some people being quarantined. Um, but you know, we can always travel through books. I'm a, I'm a great armchair traveller, and I love travelling through through my reading. Um, it broadens our horizons. But then, the other, the flip side of that is that I've discovered it also brings us closer. You know, here you and I are on opposite sides of the world, and we've bridged that distance completely with our love of books and with you know our passions, and we're able to chat away thanks to modern technology, certainly. Um, and I've also found that with my readers. I, I have lots of emails coming in from readers and lots of connections. And that's so lovely. So in a way, books make the world a bigger place because we can travel. But then conversely, they have this um, flip side of bringing us all closer and closing down those distances. And for me, that's one of the great magic aspects of of reading. I wonder if you've started to give much thought to how the pandemic may affect writing in the future, your your work even over the next 18 months. I was I was talking to one romance writer a few days ago who's been doing a series of rom-coms set in a tourist um, resort on an island where all the all the characters have to fly in and out. And suddenly she's thinking about the book that's got to be published next year. And whether she can have a story where people are just flying in and out of places. Um, and that's one particular example. But have you got anything that may be affected by this in terms of what you're working on currently? Um, not directly, but I do think that, that living through extraordinary times means that we will see some extraordinary stories being told. And so I think that for writers... Yes, we may we may change and we may adapt and we may have these new ideas about about extraordinary times. Um, but I'm I'm very hopeful that um, the kind of outpouring of compassion and community spirit that we've seen will keep going. 
when all this is over. Um, more than ever, we're going to need books that are uplifting and hopeful and also that inspire resilience. You know, I, I feel that the world is has been changed by this. Our perceptions of the world have been changed by this. The world's a lot more anxious and fearful. Um, the the virus and and any future kind of pandemics um, are, are out there, always going to be out there. Um, and also there's a legacy right now of people who might have lost their jobs, certainly people who will be grieving for loved ones that they've lost. Um, so like I say, I think more than ever we need escapism and romance and hope and inspiration and just that sense of all being in this together and learning from hopeful stories that that inspire resilience in all of us. Yeah, yeah, that, that's lovely, yeah. Turning to Fiona as reader, this series is called The Joys of Binge Reading and obviously you've done a great deal of reading in the past. Yeah. What are you enjoying reading at the moment and what would you like to recommend to listeners? Well, at the moment, I'm, I have to admit, I have a sort of annual Jane Austen fest of my own and I just go back and, and reread Jane Austen's wonderful books because, you know, she did it first, she did it best kind of thing for all of us romance writers. So I I go back and I reread a lot of her books, but actually this year there've been two great new books if for any Jane Austen fans out there I would highly recommend them. Um the first is called Miss Austen and it's by Jill Hornby and it actually tells the story of Jane's sister Cassandra um after Jane's death who was responsible for um, kind of managing Jane's legacy and Jane's estate. And it's a known fact that she um, sort of spirited away quite a lot of the letters that were exchanged between Jane and certainly Cassandra and also other members of the family. And so this book starts with that premise and takes a look at why Cassandra might have done that. And it, it just it's just beautifully written. It's a book that I think Jane Austen would have been, you know, would be very happy if she was reading it herself. She would say that Jill Hornby has has absolutely captured the style and the the, the period feel of it. Um, and the second Jane Austen related book that I've just started, and it's a it's a very satisfying, great big doorstop of a book. So for anyone who's in lockdown, you know, this is going to keep us going for a while. Um, it's called The Other Bennett Sister. And it's by a lady called a writer called Janice Hadlow. And it picks up the story of Mary Bennett, who's the sort of least known and um, most background, if you like, character in Pride and Prejudice of the five Bennett sisters. So I'm really looking forward to, to sort of immersing myself in that as well. So those are my Jane Austen tips. But um, uh, other books I've been reading recently, um, in terms of a, a great binge read, um, I can recommend Elena Ferranti's Neapolitan Quartet, which again, that will keep us all going for, for ages. I think it took me about a year to read the four books because they're, <laughs> they're all pretty hefty ones in their own right. But talking about armchair travel, as we've been doing, you know, that that transports you to Naples um, at, in a, during a particular era. And, and they're so evocative, those books. Um, and then my other probably all-time favourite authors 
who I would always recommend to people are um, two American writers, Anita Shreve, who very sadly died about a year ago, but I love all her works, her, her books. They're not necessarily a series of books, but she delves into relationships and and that sense of place as well, which I think inspired a lot of my writing. And finally, Barbara Kingsolver, who, who just is a great writer. Um, two of her earlier books I would hugely recommend to anyone who needs a, a sort of good, uplifting read about struggle and dark times, but, but filled with hope, um, are The Bean Trees and Pigs in Heaven. She wrote them years ago. But they're, they're just wonderful books and, and well worth a read and always relevant to our times. Mm, mm. Oh, that's great. It always amazes me how there are books out and books and authors out there that you can have been reading your whole life and you still haven't heard of them. And I hadn't heard of the Neapolitan Quartet. So that's um, one I'll certainly be looking up. I must admit, I do a weeny bit of book reviewing for a New Zealand uh, magazine here, and I read the other Bennett sister to re- review it, and I loved it. Good. Oh, that's great. I've only just started that. I think I'm on about chapter three or something. So, but I'm already drawn in. You know, I'm already gripped. So that that's good to know that you enjoyed it. It was really fun, and once again, it was a, a story of a very patient, quiet, humble, modest person who who um triumphs in the end it was it, yeah it's got a it's got a nice resilience about it as well but we're starting to come to the end of our time together um so circling around and looking back over your writing career um is there anything that you would change if you were doing it all again that's a good question do you know i i don't know that there is anything i'd change because everything i've done has got me to where i am now you know, and um, it, it's it's difficult to say. I mean, yeah, there were struggles. There were definitely times when I thought I'd give up, um, like all writers. Um, but again, you know, it's that that perseverance, that kind of keeping going, that um, I, th- I think would be my advice to any any other writers out there who are maybe starting out in their career I think I think what probably what I would have changed is it would have been nice to have had a crystal ball and to know that my books would be loved by people all around the world because when you start writing you you are very much writing in isolation and you have that hope you know you sort of have to keep the faith that that other people will want to read what you're writing but um it is you're doing it in a bit of a vacuum to begin with so I think it's that, um, yeah, if, if somebody could have said to me, keep going because you'll get there, that would have really helped in those kind of darker, more solitary moments. So that's my message to any other budding writers out there. Just keep going. Keep the faith. That's lovely. How long did it take you to, to so-called break through or to feel that you were gaining some traction? Um, it was... Yeah, I think that really writing my first book, which which for any writer starting out, you know, you're doing that without a without an agent probably, without a, a publisher, almost certainly. You're you're writing on spec. Um so that's the really difficult time is is kind of getting that done. And and to write my first book, The French for Love, which is, you know, not one of my longest books by any means, I think that took me 
certainly two or three years, you know, from the beginning to the end, um, to, to being picked up by a publisher and, and getting it published. Um, and life definitely then got easier. Um, and it, it's great having a team behind me with a, with a very supportive agent. And once the publisher picks you up, then you you have a, a wonderful support system out there. Yes, that's great. That's lovely. So looking ahead, Fiona, what is on the on the agenda for you for the next 12 months, your 2020 plans? Right. Well, I have another book coming out, um, The Skylark Secret, which will be published on the 29th of September. So we're just in the, the kind of final stages of editing that at the moment. Um, and it's a bit of a move away from France, this one. I've set it in Scotland um, and it's set against the backdrop of a, a beautiful sea loch up in the, the remote highlands, which became a muster point for the Arctic convoys during World War II. And I loved that idea of this remote, peaceful, quiet place suddenly being turned upside down by the war, um, which, which, you know, originally would have, for all those, the, the crofters that lived on the shores of that loch, the war would have seemed very far away. But suddenly it appeared it arrived on their doorstep, literally, and and, and everything changed. So um, that book shares some of the themes of my previous books, looking at World War II, looking at um, resilience and, um, you know, people surviving dark times and learning quite a lot about themselves along the way. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's a change of setting for me. So I'm, I'm excited about that one. Fantastic. Do you enjoy interacting with your readers and how can they find you online? I love interacting with my readers. And, um, yeah, it's it's such a joy getting messages from them and emails from them. And people, you know, relate to the books and then share that with me. And that really is one of the best things about being a writer. So, yeah, if people want to get in touch, um, you can find a lot more information about me and my books via my website, which is fionavalpi.com. And there's a, a function there to sign up for updates. Um, you can email me and the email address is on the website there. And I'm also on all the social media platforms, Fiona Valpi Books on Facebook, or you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Fantastic. Just wonderful. Tell us just finally, because I am curious, what took you to France originally? I think you spent seven years there, didn't you? Yes. Um, it, it was an adventure, really. Um, I, my then husband and I, because I've, I've since got divorced, um, but my husband and I at the time, you know, we'd sort of done our time of bringing up our two sons and the boys were at the stage where they were finishing school and going off to university. And um, we'd both been working very much full time and just decided that this was a moment when we could perhaps go and try something else once the boys were, were safely off and, um, you know, starting to live their own lives. And we'd been living in Edinburgh for 14 years. Um, so I hadn't seen much sun. So the, the, thought of, the thought of French sunshine and lovely French wine and going off and having a big adventure 
was what took us there. That's lovely because I was sitting here thinking Scotland, you wouldn't be seeing as nearly as much sun in Scotland as you did in France. <laughs> no, we don't. Although we're actually we're enjoying a really lovely spring, thank the Lord, because, um, you know, being in lockdown, it would be awful if this was the middle of winter, I think, mm. definitely. Mm. Yeah. yeah. We have been enjoying a lovely spring. But yeah, I live in Scotland, but I love travelling still and going in search of the sun, whether it's to France or last year, I spent a little bit of time in Italy, which was so beautiful. And um, I think probably like everyone else, I'm sitting here thinking, well, when lockdown ends, where will I go? And you start, <laughs> oh, you know, let's think big. Let's think worldwide. There are so many places out there. So, um, yeah, I'd love to go to come to New Zealand and um, enjoy drinking some of your lovely Sauvignon Blanc down there. <laughs> That's lovely. Yes, I thought that um, in the book, uh, was it the French for love? I just can't remember which one it was, but Gina with her Masters of Wine. I really suspected at one point that you might have even studied for a Masters of Wine as well, because you certainly knew how to write about wine. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that I never did anything as academic as a Masters of Wine. I just was a very enthusiastic researcher when it came to wine. <laughs> I drift. <laughs> well, that's lovely, and and here's hoping that you get to taste some of those Otago wines sometime. <laughs> oh, <it's a> <laughs> well, that's lovely, my dear. Thank you so so much for your time. It's been beautiful talking to you, and your books are a delight. So all the very best. It was quite tantalising because you've got the cover of the Skylark Secret on your website, but absolutely no description at the moment. Or on my website, it doesn't come up with anything. Yeah, so it's a big no, mis mystery. Yeah, they're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it should be up there quite soon, I think. And, and everybody's champing at the bit to get, to get the wording up there. So yeah, that will that's something that comes out from the publisher. So it'll be appearing very soon. Okay, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me, Jenny. Great to chat with you. Yes, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at point 
andshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.